So with that, we get to close out Nehemiah, Ezra Nehemiah series. I'm going to clap for that because I always like closing out a series. It's probably because I like to achieve things and feel like, whew, we accomplished something. So with that, uh, I'm going to read all of Nehemiah 13. It'll probably take about four and a half, five minutes. I invite you to stand if you are able. If halfway through you do have to sit down, don't feel bad about that. Nehemiah 13, and I'll read all of it, starting at verse 1. And it reads, On that same day as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said, No Anamite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned that cursing into a blessing. When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. Before this had happened, Elisha, the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storeroom of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative to Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priest. I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Arxaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. When I arrived back to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, I learned about Elisha's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified, and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, so they and the singers who were to conduct the worship service had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? And then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. I assigned supervisors for the storeroom, Shelaman the priest, Zodak the scribe, and Pedean, one of the Levites. And I appointed Hanan, son of Zechur, and grandson of Mattiah as their assistant. These men had an excellent reputation, and it was their job to make honest distributions to the fellow Levites. Remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and its services." In those days, I saw the men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem at that so I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. Wasn't it just this, short of thing, this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city? Now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way? Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut at darkness 
as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until Sabbath ended, I sent some of my own servants to guard the gate so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and the tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I spoke sharply to them and said, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Remember this good deed also, O my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some of the other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called, them, called down curses on them. I beat some of them. I pulled out their hair. I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin, I demanded? There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing the sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodas, son of Elshabed, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat, the Horonite, so I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O oh my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and solemn vows of the priests and Levites. So I purged out everything foreign and assigned tasks to the priests and Levites, making certain that each knew his work. I also made sure that they supply the supply of wood for the altar, and the first portions of the harvest were brought in at the proper times. Remember this in my favor, O oh my God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you as we close out one series and move on to the next, that we can read your word um, for the fifth time, tenth time, a hundredth time, the same story, and yet you still speak to us the same truth, but yet anew, because you're so graceful. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, Holy Spirit, that guides us and leads us so we can understand. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, say whatever you don't, I don't. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. <clears throat> do you ever ask yourself what's the point I'm sure you do I know I do you know whenever you help someone out for a while and they fall back into the same routine or the same sin or the same situation and then you just shake your head and you think what's the point so perhaps you are willing to sit down with someone once a week or once every other week and you do this for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, even a couple of years. And then you find out a story or you haven't seen them for a while and you hear a story that they fell back into something or something happened and your heart just breaks. And then you ask the question, well, what, what's the point? Was this a waste of time? Or perhaps it's you, yourself, <laughs> You start off strong, whatever it may be, and then you fall off the wagon a few days later or weeks later, and you think, what's the point, or this is a waste of time. It might be your fifth or your 25th time trying to start a diet that you super promise you'll do well. You eat all the cookies you can on Sunday night, and then Monday you're ready. By Tuesday, you're eating the same cookies again. Or perhaps you start the scripture reading plan, and and you say, I'm going to do it this time, and next thing you know, for the 20th time you read in the beginning, 
And that's about as far as you get. And then you ask, well, what's the point? And why do I do this again? And why do I do what I want to do, but I don't do what I want to do? And the whole I do, I do passage from Paul. So what is the point? Why do you need to get back up? And why do you need to continue on? And, and why does one person letting you down should not disqualify everybody in your life from being involved in your life? Why does one bad relationship make you feel like you don't want to have any relationship at all and just be a hermit and live by yourself? And what we've read here over the last two weeks before today is we have read an incredible revival, perhaps the greatest revival in the Old Testament ever recorded. And secondly, second probably to what happened in Acts when the Holy Spirit came down upon the people. But the last few weeks as we've come to wrap up Ezra and Nehemiah, we have seen the people of God make a recommitment to God. We have seen a revival truly take place, really what a revival looks like, starting with one person within the Word of God, through the Spirit, and going through each and every person. And we read as God's Word is on display, is read out loud, that has power through the Spirit. We've seen oaths Lord, if I do this, I swear, I promise, I'll do this. And even if I do it, then curse me. That's some serious charges. And they do it again and again. And last week we went through a list of names of people. I didn't actually read all of them, but if you remember, the people who made a big difference. And remember that scene, I drew it out if someone was interviewing, and what were you here for? Oh, we just moved to Jerusalem. And what were you here for? Well, we, we prayed. What else did you do? Well, we prayed. <laughs> What's your job? Oh, I'm a gatekeeper. What's your job? I let the good in, the bad out. Great. What else did you do? That's it. That's my job. And you, sir, what, what's your I'm a Levite. What do you do? Oh, I just make sure the wood is there so we could do burnt offerings. Well, get a job, you bum. I mean, uh, that's what we've seen. We've seen this list, and we talked about uh, our concern if we get recognition or not, if that prevents us from attending church, serving God, or whatever it is. And, and now we come to the close of Assyria and Ezra and Nehemiah, and it can be real easy to come to the end, and that's the end, and think, that's it? I mean, you turn the page, and Esther... Well, where's the good stuff? Like, you clearly are missing a page. And, and then if you remember, I told you e Esther actually happens between Nehemiah 5 and 6, so Esther's not even in the right place. Well, just forget it. So disappointed. And actually, if we're reading the chronological, this is where the Old Testament ends, pretty much ends. This is it. We read Nehemiah gets upset. He's mad. He's angry. He's Pulls out people's hair. That's a way to get people's attention. Or perhaps you, you could even blame me. Well, why would you end on Nehemiah? Where's the happy yes? It's interesting. I, won't, I wasn't going to say this, but I just can't help myself, and it's right here in my notes. But a lot, I really enjoy listening to sermons. You're like, duh, you're a pastor, you should. But that doesn't mean I like listening to them. I really do. And I really enjoy listening to pastors from other countries who live in other countries Typically, right now, I'm on a kick, an Australian pastor, simply because he has a cool accent, and um, I'm shallow like that, I guess, but he's a really good teacher, and then there's one in South Korea, 
And it's interesting, uh, I was listening to his sermon as he was closing out Ezra Nehemiah a couple of weeks ago, and what, was, what I found so interesting is he said, the American culture needs the hero to win. The South Korean, the Korean culture needs the, bat, the good guy to die somewhere halfway through. And it's like this whole contrast. So I was listening and I was thinking, he said, and that's why us as South Koreans, we really like Nehemiah because it ends on a dud. I was like, well, I don't like it. But that's really what it is, is there's these types of endings that are so hard. Even whenever we see someone in our lives end in just misery, it, just, it breaks our heart and it should. And of course, that, that pastor wasn't saying that they don't care, but just the difference of endings and what the endings mean because he did close by saying, because even at the end of the movie, we know it's not the end of life. So in, even at the end of Nehemiah, we know that's not the end of the story. We know Christ comes. But still, the question is, is what's the point? I've been involved in many different types of ministries with different churches, and there are times and seasons and ministries where they go well, and there are times where they go bad. I remember as a youth pastor, one time having a very successful Bible study on a school campus during lunch, and there would be 45, 50 kids there. And I was very excited for that. The following year, for the first five weeks, I had me and me alone. And I ate my lunch and I thought, what's the point? This is awful. What happened the last year? It's not worth it. And I wanted to quit. Eventually, some kids came. Even that ministry is still going on. They've changed since COVID and now you can only have a Bible study at lunch in the classroom, but it has to be hosted by a teacher and all these rules. And then I just think, well, what's, what's the point? And this is where Nehemiah is. So if you're looking in chronological order and looking for a kind of a time frame from Nehemiah 12 to Nehemiah 13 is about 20 years. So they have this big revival, this big celebration. They record all the names of all of the people or all of the names that represent all of the people. And then 20 years pass And it only takes 20 years for this group who was so committed to Christ to go back to their old ways. What I wrote down here is convictions come about not because you feel good or bad about it. That's how the world makes decisions. Convictions need to stay in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what's happening here is that there was a slow fade. It's not one, and the next day they they had a revival, the next day they fell off the wagon. No, this was a slow compromise. Just, nah, it's okay. Just little by little by little by little. Even today, we we see here, they, they deliberately, they don't deliberately choose to compromise, not because they were persuaded by a good argument, but they're persuaded, I think, to compromise because of a relationship with other people. It's not that one day they were reading through the scripture and say, hey, you know what? We got this wrong. I think it's a relationship, and we'll talk about that. It's like going to the beach. Anyone been to the beach? Sure. And you go out to the water, and you're in there for a couple minutes, and then you look back to see where your stuff is, and then it's like 100 yards the other way. You're like, well, how did that happen? You just slowly start to drift. Even parents, as you watch your kids play, you watch them. Until you watch the oldest notice, then the second notice, and the third never notices, and you have to go run and chase after them. But I think that's really where compromise to God's truth comes in. It's a slow fade. 
It can happen all of a sudden, but one little thing after another. And the reason you go back to the old ways is not because, really, you read this argument, this this new article that you've never seen before, like I said, or you're reading through the Bible and say, oh, I found a new truth. You turn slowly because someone in your life will not embody your view. And you have a relationship. And you're so concerned about losing a relationship that you don't say everything that you want to. For the sake of the relationship, of course. Then a couple of things happen and you're so determined not to be like all the other Christians that they've complained about. I'm going to show you what a real Christian is. I'm kind and compassionate and loving. I know you know these other Christians that are mean and legalistic, but I'm going to show you God's love. Are you really, honestly, I know for me, sometimes I simply value the relationship over Christ. That's why homosexuality can sneak into a relationship and you won't stand out because you have a friend that you know who's living in that sin and you don't, and in your mind you come up with this big argument of saying, you know, you shouldn't do this, but I'm going to be real close friends with you and I'm going to compromise or abortion or any other sin. It doesn't matter. I just pick two that are hot topics that Christians are labeled to not care for people. We are so determined to prove that we are loving and we think it will not happen on our watch. And we either want to be liked by the people or we want to be the people who are liked that will eventually show this conviction, like we think of a workaround. And students of late, and this is why that's so, I'm doing such a long introduction, is because as of late at youth group, there have been many students, and many, more than five, that have that are facing in their schools this very issue. And I wrote down, paraphrasing, so I won't pick on any one student, that uh, they are facing an attack on their faith where the enemy is attempting to rebrand Christianity and rewrite what Christians believe. A student asked me not too long ago, okay, so as a Christian, why am I supposed to hate and be mean to this type of person? Who said that? Who said that you're supposed to hate and be mean? Well, that's what I'm labeled. Well, that's the wrong label. Then they end up saying, well, I don't want to be that kind of Christian if I'm supposed to hate them and I'm supposed to be mean and I'm supposed to do all these things. Well, where's the logic in that? You are listening to the enemy rebrand who you are more than what God's word is saying. That's why I call it rebranding Christianity. The enemy is clever. We talked about this at the elders meeting because I can't stop talking about it, just thinking the world is telling us what Christianity is, and sometimes we believe it. And if your core values are coming from what the world says you are, you're going to miss it. And first of all, hating and being mean is not Christianity. Being strong and firm is Christianity. And just because you do not support a lifestyle of any kind of sin doesn't mean you are hating them. And what we're seeing here is this is what Nehemiah is facing. He's facing this group of people who had a relationship that slowly compromised for the sake of the relationship. But it's so easy to focus on the relationship because the person is right there in front of them. And again, it's just more like I will bring the truth once they put their guard down, then I'll hit them with a Jesus card and then they'll be fine. And this is exactly what Elishab the priest did with Tobiah. Do you remember who Tobiah is? Tobiah was the enemy of the Israelites. Every chance he got, he attacked them, he lied about them, 
He's the one who made the comment that the fox would knock down the wall. He invited Nehemiah to a meeting so he can kill him. I think Ken covered that when he taught last month. And then all of a sudden, now Tobiah, the enemy of the Israelites, is living in the church. How does that happen? I mean, in the temple. I mean, it's as if there's an enemy of renewed church, let's say, and I say, hey, you know what? We're just going to give them the whole fellowship hall. It's fine. Or whatever we call that side. You know what? Why doesn't he just move in half the stage? That's ridiculous, right? But then we find out that Elisha, his, he is related to Tobiah through marriage, so it's awkward, and you know when you have in-laws and you don't like your brother or sister-in-law, it's weird, but you're nice to them because your husband or wife tells you to, and it's awkward, and now you're looking at each other, pointing and saying, ha, see, you do have a weird brother. Yes, I do. But you make compromises along the way, and Nehemiah, after 20 years, because he promised Arxaxerxes that he'll be back. You remember at the very beginning, Arxaxerxes' wife actually says, well, how long will you be gone? He said, a little while, 12 years, a little while. Now he goes back and he's serving as the cupbearer. He goes all the way back to 800 miles away and he's either making a house call or he hears things are bad and he asks for permission and he shows up and this is where the story takes place. He shows up after 20 years. And I can only imagine when you walk into the scene, you know, after you clean your bedroom, you clean the kid's room, and then you come back and it's a disaster, and you're like, just burn it. Like, <laughs> throw everything out. He comes back to that, and that's the sin that they're living in. So I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to highlight portions of the story, and then hopefully just have some takeaways if it's worth it. So if you look at verses 1 and 3... It says, on that same day they were reading, or excuse me, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the past siege, it was found out that said no Anamite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God, for they had provided the Israelite with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them throughout this. And this is all from Numbers. If you want to read it, it's a great story. It's when the donkey talks to him. What a great story. I wish a donkey would talk to me. But he's riding, and, and Balak, the Ammonite, hires him because he's some kind of magician to curse them, the Israelites. The Israelites are in this ravine. They don't even know that he's being cursed. The Israelites are la, 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 and God is totally protecting them. Side note for another message, there's so much that God protects us that we don't even know. But anyway, so they hired Balaam to hire and curse him, and he tries three different times, and then finally the donkey says, hey, knock it off. He's like, dude, bro, what? what's going on? Then the angel shows up because he's about to kill the donkey, because if a donkey talks, you're going to kill it, right? So the angel says, you can't do that. And he finally, instead of cursing them, blesses them. He blesses the Israelites, because he knows he can't go against God. I really, really, sometime this week, read Numbers 22 through 24. It's a fascinating story. He finally blesses them. But as he leaves at the very end, and we know this because of Revelation 2.14, it says, in Revelation 2.14, when, when the charges against the church are coming down, and 2.14 says, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerated some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. So here's the scene. Balaam is up there. 
He can't curse them. He talks to a donkey and an angel. He says, I can't do it. I'm going to bless them. And the scene that I have in my mind is Balak says, fine, just leave. Get out of here. And he starts riding away on his talking donkey. And he turns back. He goes, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to trip them up. Just send some beautiful women into their camp. That's it. And he rides off. So he can't curse them, but he knows their weakness. And we see this weakness over and over and over again. This house of God was meant to be a place dedicated to God. And here now, we see that not only are they with those people, uh, in verse four it goes on, it says, before this happened, Elishab, the priest who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of God and who was a relative to Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed Tobiah's disposal. He let him move into the church like I mentioned. So since he moved in, that means they had to move things out. And the things that they moved out was all of the grain offering, all of the wine, all of the oil. And we read um, further on in 5, we read what it's meant for. The frankincense, various articles of the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, which was prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. So they moved all of that out, moved him in. So what does that mean actually happen besides letting a bad guy live in your home? There's no more worship. Because the Levites eventually have to leave to get a job because they were dependent on that. Which also meant no one was at the gate and the gatekeepers. No one was protecting it. Remember how hard they worked over three chapters to build the wall? And how hard they worked over two and a half chapters, roughly, to build the temple? And now they're just throwing it away because, nah, it's fine. Just let them move in. So they have to leave. All of these people who, their whole job, whose name was on the list that we read had to go get a job, so no more worship, no more temple sacrifices, none of that. So Nehemiah comes in, and it's funny because he just says, oh no, and throws his stuff out, just throws it out the door. I I don't know the scene exactly, but he's like, nope, we're cleaning this all out. No, we're not making room for an enemy. This is supposed to be a holy and sanctified place. But more than that, This means that there was no more atonement. So in the Old Testament, when we talk about the temple, we talk about atonement. Atonement means at that moment, your sins are forgiven. A sacrifice had to be be given over to the Lord on the altar to forgive your sin. And depending on your sin, different kinds of sacrifices. And today, New Testament, us with the Holy Spirit in us, post-Pentecost, our atonement is made in Jesus. So, so the, the, the connection is they've never asked for forgiveness again. What has happened is they allowed the enemy to move in as if we would allow the enemy to move into our lives and we never ask for forgiveness, we never pray, we never show up to church, we're never part of a small group, we never read his word, we just totally walk away. That's the significance of what has happened there. Not just that he let his father-in-law's stepbrother's best friend move in, he let an enemy move in. But again, I keep asking myself, what's the point? How did a nation go 20 years ago praising the Lord, building the walls, broken before God, and then moved everything out to let the bad guy move in? 
It's like at the beach. You don't notice that you're slowly moving away. And verse 7 and 8, if you drop down to 7 and 8, it says, When I arrived back to Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed, providing to- Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple. I came very upset, threw all of his belongings out of the room, and then I demanded the rooms to be purified, and I brought back the articles of God, God's temple, the grain offering, and frankincense. To be purified to God means to be set apart again. This is for God, and we're going to do it, and we're going to do the right way. And again, I I can't stress this enough. There was no more atonement or forgiveness of sin during this 20 years when they did this slow fade. Then he has a whole other issue to deal with. He said he, he discovered that the Levites couldn't do all that, and then he assigned new people in verse 13 who would take care of it. And now if you drop down to verse 15, it says, in those days... I saw men of Judah treading out the wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys and bringing their wine and grapes and figs and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath again. Remember that was one of the super duper promises? I super duper, I don't know if that's how I say it. I promise I'll never work on the Sabbath. It's a good deal, sold, I'll work on the Sabbath. And that's what happened. Slowly, they allowed it to happen. And why is the Sabbath so important? I think for us it's a little bit challenging because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have a relationship with Christ. We can always be with him, but we still need to rest in him. But the Sabbath represents I completely trust in you, God. I can take a whole day off. My mentor, uh, who did all of my closeout year to get ordained and and all that, he, he regularly, when he sends out an email to some of the guys that he still checks in with or calls, he says, do you trust God enough that he can take care of you to rest? Do you really? Or does every, do you think everything depends on you? And that's what they were doing. Oh, we can make it a little bit more. We can just press it a little bit. We can, you know, we'll only work for two hours on the Sabbath. And then two hours turn to three. And next thing you know, there's no Sabbath. And working on the Sabbath really is saying, God, I don't trust you. Or, God, I need a little bit more than what you've offered me. And not only does our money and our clothing come from you, God, but our very life comes from you, and now we just want a little bit more. And using this day to modernize it, to go to farmer's market, and you can work to make an extra buck, and then eventually those guys who were selling all that stuff, talks about the men from Tyree bringing in the fish, they were great fishermen, he kicked them all out, but then they started camping on the outside of the walls, so Nehemiah's walking around and saying, those guys didn't even leave. So then, as governor, this is one of the only places where he is not only like a high priest, he is also the governor. So then he makes a law, kick him out. And no, you cannot legislate a heart change, but sometimes legislation takes to wake people up. So then he gets his guards to stand out, and then they eventually leave. So here, they're 0 for 3. There's all these things they promised they wouldn't do in verse 11, or excuse me, 10, 11, and 12. They promised they would never do, and now they're doing it again. And in verse 23... Drop down to that. About the same time, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Well, of course you would. 
you let them live in your house. So furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some other of the other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. That didn't mean he cussed them out. He's just saying, don't you remember these curses you made? I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. The sweet little Nehemiah is now getting rogue. And, and the reason why pulling out the hair, and if you read King James, it says from the head of their head and the hair from their beard, that's not just to hurt them, that's to shame them. The most valuable thing to Jewish people at that time and for many Jewish people now is their hair and the head represents their holiness. So now basically, he stripped away what they represent, what they hold on to is true. And if you want to go a little bit further in 2 Kings, whenever the enemy uh, collected or, or, or robbed or pillaged and took over an Israelite nation, they would shave half a beard and half a head, saying that you don't belong anywhere. So he's pulling them out saying, this whole, disgu- this whole disguise you're wearing, pretending that you're holy is fake, and I'm going to show you, and then, Ouch. So he pulls him out. He gets angry. No, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting to do that. But he fights, and he's so upset. And he said, I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry these pagan people of the land. Don't you remember about 28 years ago, we had to divorce some of them? We had to separate ourselves because it wasn't even a real. But here's the thing that's, that we're seeing slowly. The kids couldn't speak the language anymore. That means they weren't reading the scripture. That also meant they couldn't understand a message. It's not like today where hundreds of languages are on your phone and you can select any language you want. Here, the scripture was only in Hebrew. That's it, a little Aramaic. So they couldn't even do that. This is just showing that slow fade away. Now, I know what's common is you think, well, Romeo and Juliet, two feuding families, and they love each other. Do you know how Romeo and Juliet ends? <laughs> They're dead, and it's dumb. I get frustrated. Just stop it <laughs> every time. But that's what we say, but true love, oh, but I love him. It doesn't matter that he doesn't follow Christ. I promise that I will date him and love him to Christ. Don't you know that one story of that one friend of the one friend that he came to Christ after they got married? Yes, but I can tell you the 200 other stories that doesn't work. And they were moving one step at a time away from God. And really, we're only two generations away from Christ being gone in our lives. God won't allow that to happen, but we're seeing it in the nation, we're seeing it in the world And I would suggest that every generation thinks that they've seen the worst, but the worst is yet to come. And they're moving away, and they're allowing their children to marry these other people. And this is not racism. This has everything to do with faith. Because in the Old Testament, the people group that you were represented your faith, and your faith also represented your race, had nothing to do with racism, had everything to do with you were being led away. He even gives the example in 26, wasn't this the exactly what led Solomon of Israel into sin? I, did, 
I demanded. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. Remember Solomon in a dream? God says, what do you want? He asked for wisdom. God blessed him right there. The wisest man that ever was. Married many, many women, many, many foreign women, and as he got older, he started building temples for their gods, started worshiping in their gods, a slow trend, which also is a great reminder for both men and women, but I'll just speak to the men here. Even at your old age, whatever you want to say, it could be easy for you to walk away from your faith. So one generation at a time is slowly walking away from God for, and we're reading this thousands of years later and seeing what's happening and seeing giving God's enemy a room in our heart. So just a couple of things that I was convicted of as I was reading through. I'll move through these quickly. The first one that I wrote down Past revival doesn't guarantee our our future. Past revival doesn't guarantee our future. We need to remember it and honor it, but we can't live on it. The theme of our past. So here's a test. Whenever you talk about the goodness of God, do you start with several years ago? 20 years ago, this is what the Lord did. Which is great. But if, if your stories only begin with many years ago and doesn't begin with, well, just today or just yesterday or just last week, telling people what Christ had done for you with many years ago is relying on the past. And this is what could have taken place here with Nehemiah 20 years ago. Don't you remember how great we are? Oh, man, that was so wonderful. He shows up and says, this isn't right. When you tell the story of what Christ has done, does it always start with many years ago? Many years ago is not the finish line. Uh, Spoiler alert, our next series when, when I come back is we're going to do Encounters with Jesus. It's called Encounters with Jesus. It's just a way to look through the gospel and look at individual encounters that people had with Jesus, primarily Mark and Matthew, well, all four Gospels, but primarily Mark and Matthew. And uh, what I'm hoping to do is um, have all of you in an attempt, and I'll share how we're going to do it, be reminded of your current encounter with Jesus. Because a lot of times we start back when we were saved, for those of us who are followers in Christ. Great thing to remember. But again, what has Christ done lately? Because if you can't pay attention to what Christ has done lately, perhaps you are living on yesterday's revival. Just because Natalie and I got married almost 15 years ago, if I never tell her I love you, and then my argument is, is, well, I told her 15 years ago, to which she could reply, well, I fed you just yesterday, you know, but I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you get the point. You don't tell your children when they're born, I love you. And now they're 50 years old and you don't tell them. It's that same thing. Past revival doesn't guarantee our future. Remember, remember it, but don't live on it. The next one that I wrote down is 
The call of the world to compromise will never stop. The call of the world to compromise will never stop. The world is telling us to trust everything and anything but Christ. He's not the center of your hope. He's not the center of your joy. He's not the center of your love. He's not your all in all. The movement away from Christ is a slow drift. It can happen all of a sudden, but at least in my experience, it's that beach theme. It's going out to the beach and then staying in it too long and looking back and think, where's my keys? Am I even in the same beach? How did I end up so close to the pier? How did this take place? And the world is just calling us to sin. Going back to some of the things that some of the students are struggling with, I would suggest that we too as older adults are struggling with How do I share my faith and not compromise when I'm so worried about how they'll receive me? As you remember, Christ said, they rejected me, they too will also reject you. But that's hard. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. Or for those who are super strong, I don't care what people think. I'm going to sit in my home and just think bad things about them. But the world is calling to compromise little by little by little by little just away from God. Last one I wrote down is there is a place for righteous anger. There is a place for righteous anger. This past Thursday, I had the great privilege of doing the chapel for the school called Not a School. Is that right? Yeah. That's right, right? (laughs) Not a school. Anyways, I was doing that, and I I was talking about righteous anger, and I I brought this little toy car that I had, and I told the story of how I used to make little model cars, and I always enjoyed making the model car exactly how it was made in 1950-whatever or 60-whatever I'm making. It matched the box. I like it stock. My brother, on the other hand, hated things stocked and thought that it was too boring. So I had 150 cars all hung up in my room and I was very proud of. I went to school, he stayed home, fake sick, and he put stickers on every single of the car and he heated them up with the hair dryer so I couldn't peel them off. And I was so angry at him. And I think that was righteous anger. I don't know about you, but I was so angry at him. And I told him, I don't even want to be your brother anymore. That's not righteous. The second thing I did is I waited until he fell asleep. And when he falls asleep, he's out. You can rob him or move him to another country and he wouldn't know. So I took the stickers off and I got my mom's hair dryer and I was going to give him tattoos, but she stopped me. <laughs> but this anger, so then I asked the, the little kids about what things make you angry and how can, in your anger, do not sin from Ephesians. And they were raising hands and giving it and the next thing you know, it turned into a confessional time. Well, my mommy, when she gets angry, I was like, okay, hold on, <laughs> slow down. And then I remember one mom was like, We'll call her Joy. That wasn't her name. Joy, stop it. Well, mom, it's true. You know, just, just going in anger and anger and anger. But, but sometimes, Christians, we feel like we, can, we can't even be angry. It's, it's not right, but we're supposed to. The things of this world that are sinful should anger us. But first, before the sins of the world grieves us, our own sins should grieve us first. You know, in the middle of the night when you wake up and your mind goes back to however many years ago to that stupid thing you did and you're like, that was so stupid. Anyone do that? Or you're driving in your car and then all of a sudden there's a commercial or 
whatever because you're too cheap to pay for a premium or whatever it is and you're driving. And then all of a sudden that thought that you had of that dumb sin that you did five years ago and you just feel so awful. Anyone? You know that? And you're so angry? You know what I noticed? I've never woke up in the middle of the night and thought, man, that sin was totally against God. What I thought was, that was so stupid of me. Like, I, I even make my sin against me, not against God. Like, this, this righteous anger needs to start with our own anger. There's a theologian named Carl Henry, and he was about 92 towards the end of his life, and they, lots of, they were doing this whole conference, at, uh, um, and they asked him, hey, anything that you can give us, because you know, in, your late, or in your early 90s, you still haven't said one bad thing about the current generation, because it's popular for one generation to think that they're better than the previous or the post-generation. And he said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands besides the cross? So our righteous anger, before we get angry at anybody else, we have to be angry at our own sins and not because of how it made us look, but that it was to God. And I really think that's why Nehemiah repeatedly say, oh God, remember me. God, remember me. Not so much that I'm so much better than them, but what's the point, God? Do a work in me. This is hard. I'm gonna have to go back to Persia and I'm gonna have to go serve the king. What's gonna happen here? The same thing that we think of when we care for other people. I'll close with what J.I. Packer said in his book called, titled, A Passion for Faithfulness. Great book. Um, And this is what he writes. He says, what we must bear in mind here, however, is that the conventions and expectation of our smooth, post-Christian, relaxed, secular, amoral Western culture are not necessarily in line with the truth and wisdom of God. Fancy way of saying the way that the world is, uh, everything's fine, does not line up with the truth, wisdom of God. Any embarrassment we might feel at Nehemiah's fortrightness could be a sign of our own spiritual and moral limitations rather than his. Was it weakness that in Nehemiah's code of conduct, the modern shehol, which means thou shall be nice, seems to have no place while thou shalt be faithful to God and zealous for God was evidently basic to it. Would Moses, David, Jesus, or Paul ever have qualified as Mr. Nice Guy? And here's the point. The assumption so common today that niceness is of the essence of goodness needs to be exploded. Nehemiah should not be criticized for thinking there are more important things in life than being nice. And he goes on to continue about that very thing. First, don't be nice to yourself, meaning don't let sin get away. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. It's that slow drift at the beach. It's that slow pulling away. And then Nehemiah ends, and then for 400 years there is silence until the New Testament well, unless you read the Apocrypha and the Bible the Catholic Church uses, which is essentially for Protestants, for us, is a really good commentary of the 400 years. It was removed in 1611, but that's for another day. But for 400 years, we don't hear from God at all. 
Nehemiah's closing remarks is essentially what closes out the Old Testament. And he reads, remember this in my favor, oh my God. So what's the point when you invest so much in the ministry and people and you ask yourself, was it worth it? The answer is, of course it's worth it. Christ is worth it. The point is Christ. The, the Israelites didn't need to work harder. We don't need to work harder or smarter. What we need is a savior. And Christ came down to be that savior. So the point of all the labor for Christ is to point back to Christ and say, yes, he is my redeemer. And here are the ones who have, he is the one who's come to save the world to give us a new heart. And that's what the point is. Not to live in the sin, and then if you do sin, then get right back up and atone for your sin. Don't let things move into your life. Realize the world is going to continue to lie to you, and then in your righteous anger, start with yourself first. That's the whole point of moving the plank out of your own eye before the speck, is realizing how much you are dependent on Christ and how important he is to you, and to quote Carl Henry again, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the fact that we live in a time where you have already come and died for our sins, and we have the Holy Spirit in us. Lord, thank you for that gift. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for living in us. Lord, the world calls to us and lies to us, and help us not compromise, Lord. Let our relationships that we have with the world just be relationships enough to get to know them and to point them to you. But let us not be like so many that we start to drift towards the way of their thinking or the way of them, uh, that we are secured and anchored in you. But Lord, will you reveal to us any sin that we have in our life, Lord, and we just ask that you continue to do a work in us. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and let us not just continue just to sin just because grace abounds, Lord. But let us grow closer to you each and every day through your spirit. So we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.